From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, we'll hear the Sustainable Business Week in Review, talk about the corporate climate initiatives made at the White House this week, and conversation with activist and media commentator Van Jones. That and much more this week on 350. It's Friday, October 23rd, 2015. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. Joining me today, as always, here in GreenBiz Studio is Associate Editor Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Joel. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're back for week two. Uh, after our maiden voyage, I heard a lot of good things about our new podcast. Uh, what'd you hear? Yeah, it was great to hear feedback. Keep it coming. You can always reach us, 350 at greenbiz.com. But what we heard, probably the number one question I got last week was, when will this be available on iTunes? And I hear that. I also get most of my podcasts on iTunes. The main thing I can say is we are working on it. Um, Should be up in the next few weeks. And thanks for bearing with us. In the meantime, you can find all you need to know about the podcast at greenbiz.com slash 350. Great. So in this podcast this week and every week, we'll bring you the stories and the stories behind the stories. And uh, one of the things we'll do, as you'll hear, we'll bring in the reporters and the thought leaders whose work you see every day on GreenBiz to talk about what's going on. We'll even play some excerpts from the interviews. Um, but first, let's begin with the GreenBiz Week in Review. So each week on GreenBiz 350, we take a look at some of the key stories of the past week. Lauren, what's hot on the agenda this week? Well, as you mentioned, it was a big week for climate action. We had the corporate commitments coming out of the White House, a big upset in the Canadian elections that people are saying could have big impacts on climate policy for North America. But in the business world, one of the things I've been tracking is GM looking at sort of new ways to scale car sharing. Transportation is one of my primary beats, as you know. Yeah, GM. I mean, this is not one of these little startups. It's all of a sudden getting into some alt model for transportation. We've now got uh, America's biggest car company and, and one of the biggest in the world, Iconic. What are they, exactly are they doing? Right. So we all know car sharing as a service that you can get sort of a nifty feature on your iPhone or your, your other type of smartphone. But what GM is doing is looking to partner with another big sector, the real estate industry, which is a smart play. You're seeing other automakers like Mercedes parent company Daimler jump into this space and newer players like Zipcar are also interested. And what they're doing is looking to broker partnerships with either apartment developers or even corporate office developers. Google has experimented with this out in California as well. So this is uh, going to start in New York, I think. Uh, they've got a deal with, uh, I think, a 25-building uh, portfolio company called Stonehenge. Um, and uh, the problem, one of the challenges it looks like is that there's eight cars for, you know, sort of 
at 500 residents. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how those New Yorkers get along with so few cars. Yeah, totally. It's one of those where I was talking to GM's head of urban mobility, Peter Kosak, and he was saying it's a little bit like managing an airline where you're working with small fleets intentionally. The point is to lower the number of cars that are ultimately on the road, thereby limiting emissions, which obviously makes sense from an environmental perspective. But one of the things that interests me is when you look at a city like New York, where you have have the subway, you have Uber, you have cabs, all different ways people get around. Uh, it's really like a cost-benefit analysis of what's the best mode for people to be getting around the city. So is it really good to be giving them new access to cars that they wouldn't have otherwise? Um, I don't know. It's something that we're going to see evolve for sure. Well, we'll see how that goes. And uh, I've heard that if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. That's what they say. Yeah. So um, our next story has to do with GMOs. And it comes from our editor-at-large, Bob Langer. Now, Bob uh, retired after uh, earlier this year after about 30 years at McDonald's, uh, heading uh, sustainability there. And really is one of the um, sort of, I, I think... Uh, sets the bar for what a sustainability executive at a big company can do in terms of proactivity, but also in dealing with the things that uh, being on the firing line and, and dealing with all the different critics who, you know, just no matter what McDonald's did, it was never good enough. In fact, I use them uh, iconically for what I call the tyranny of brand leadership, which is basically in six words, nobody beats up on Burger King. <laughs> right, right. But again, whatever McDonald's does is sort of never good enough. But anyway, he's, he retired from that. He's now writing really interesting, provocative stories for us. And the story that he had this week is called, If Science is Good for Climate Change, Why Not for GMOs? And, and what the case he's making is that uh, you know, we're always talking when it comes to climate about uh, paying attention to the science, listen to the science. What do the scientists agree? And he's saying, well, when it comes to genetically modified foods, uh, the scientists agree that they're pretty safe. In fact, uh, he quotes, uh, says that roughly the same percentage of scientists believe that general uh, genetically modified foods are safe to eat, about 88 percent, as believe climate change is caused by human activity, which is 87 percent. So. It's, it's stirred up quite a number of comments, as you might imagine. It did. That's true. A lot of people sort of raise these bigger issues of transparency and ethics in the food supply chain, which we know is a much broader issue um, in sort of sustainably sourced food. But I'm interested. Did you hear from Bob on sort of what he thought of all this? I just talked with him a few minutes ago, and here's what he had to say. So, Bob, tell me why you decided to write this piece. I wanted to write about it because I believe we need to be open to biotechnology to better our lives through food. Uh, it just seems logical to me that technology is used in every asset of life to make lives better. Why not for food? And I'm fascinated by the idea that so many people in the sustainability field, almost, almost carte blanche, resist the use of GMOs and food. And I really think we need to be open for it. And I think there's instances where it can be better for people. It can be better for the planet. A lot of people who uh, commented on this piece uh, assumed it was sort of pro-GMOs. Is that your stance? I was very open about saying I'm not uh, pro-GMO, but most importantly, I'm not anti-GMO either. I just think we need to be open to it. Uh, hey, I mentioned in the article that I led a team at McDonald's that said no to Monsanto in the mid-90s to the GMO potato because we didn't see that it would bring a benefit to our customers or society. 
I, I just don't think we should uh, carte blanche eliminate it as a possibility. And I use the story of the orange and the potato. It just seems to me we should save the orange through biotechnology. And the fact that it comes from uh, spinach, it doesn't bother me. And I think the people that are doing it are beyond Monsanto. And I, a lot of the comments were related to Monsanto. This has nothing to do with Monsanto. There's so many companies, academics, scientists that are outside the scope of Monsanto that are coming up with solutions for the world, like this, uh, like this Eric Merkoff that I mentioned from Texas A&M. And, and, the, and the solution from Simpla is from their own set of scientists. It's outside the scope of Monsanto. Let's not live in the past. Let's live for the future. Well, I guess it's partly because Monsanto is the poster child uh, for GMOs and takes all the heat. And uh, you, you used to work for a company that was kind of in that same position. Yeah, I worked for McDonald's, so I know what being a, a symbol is all about. But we got to get beyond the symbol. I mean, hey, this is not like uh, Monsanto represents, uh, you know, Kleenex for soft tissue. Uh, the fact is there's a wide variety of biotechnology. I'm saying some of it could be a solution for the future. And I guess that's my other main message that I want to convey, not only being open, but being more outcome-based. You know, we shouldn't be judging uh, something by the process. We should be more judging it by the science and the outcome. Is this product better for people, health, better for the planet? Yes, you got to go through a lot of rigorous research and science. It's interesting, you know, science is not black and white, isn't it? It's, it's very uh, artful. It's very interpretive. Uh, but yet I think we need to be uh, really really dogged about looking at the science and, and less emotion on this subject. Okay. So finally, what do you hope will happen because of this piece? I'm hoping that people step up and volunteer to help s save the orange in America. I really do. I, I, and I think a lot of this falls on the NGO community, which in general, and I hate to stereotype, but in general, they're, they're, they're against the, the, the creation of biotechnology alternatives, even though when you speak to them in the, in the hallways, so many of them that are very, very, you know, collaborative and science-based, you know, see this as a solution. I hope Simplot can make this potato really come alive and make it a commercial success. And I hope NGOs and scientists step up to the plate to help them. They can reduce waste dramatically. They can eliminate or reduce acrylamides, which is a possible carcinogen, dramatically. I mean, their new potato is not, int is not intraspecies. It's within a species, it's coming from another potato. Why wouldn't we want something from another potato uh, that's not transgenic to be a solution for our world? So I, I'm hoping to spark a conversation, I know I did, but I'm also hoping to spark some action and people stepping up and, and making this you know, a possibility for the future and not just making it all about Monsanto in the past. Well, we need a lot more voices on this, and so thank you for yours. And uh, uh, what do you all think about this? Send your thoughts to us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Bob Langer, thanks a lot. You're welcome. All right, so moving from the world of food into high tech. This week we had a couple of stories looking at the issue of natural capital. That's sort of how you assign an economic value to natural resources, a big area of interest right now, I think, for a lot of companies. 
Our senior writer, Heather Clancy, took a pretty nuanced look this week at a topic a lot of people know about, e-waste. And one of the things she was interested in, in investigating was how the tech industry looks to mitigate its impacts on the environment. She found a pretty startling number, the sort of the total tally that the tech industry has been able to accomplish by closing the loop on plastics and some of the other materials used in the gadgets we all rely on. And that's $10 billion. So obviously nothing to scoff at. And I think it sort of belies this broader issue of how companies are looking to quantify their impacts on nature. Yeah, one of the biggest uh, pieces of all this comes from television uh, disposal. uh, It was the biggest culprit. uh, Close to half of all the costs were incurred by TVs. And I'm sure that has a lot to do with all those older TVs with the cathode ray tubes that are actually illegal to dump in a, a number of states. But also the uh, switch to digital signals that the uh, American broadcast industry did, and probably also around the world, which led to uh, people buying new uh, TVs to accommodate that and getting rid of their old ones. And of course, just the uptake of flat screens and the cool new technology all the time. So in our love affair with technology, we're creating uh, just a whole piles and piles of, of problems. I was just at a, uh, uh, exhibit at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in, in San Francisco was a, a photo exhibit that had the world's largest e-waste disposal dump outside of Accra, uh, Ghana, uh, and the people who worked there. And it, it was just amazing to see, but it also horrible to read their stories. Yeah, I'm sure. I do think it's important to note, though, that natural capital does expand beyond the tech industry. We had another piece this week by Libby Burnick from the organization True Cost, and natural capital really is right in their wheelhouse. And she was looking at water, um, specifically some new tools that are out there to help businesses and investors uh, quantify water, because better quantify water, really, because we know that water is a really underpriced resource. Um, and this is looking at really thinking about water through a scarcity lens and how that should impact the way businesses operate. And True Cost, of course, is our partner on the State of Green Business Report, which will be coming out in February. You'll be hearing a lot more about that. Well, that's our take on this week's Week in Review. So another great story this week was about Van Jones, uh, the uh, iconic uh, civil rights, environmental, media, entrepreneurial leader uh, who I've known for now uh, over a dozen years and really have been inspired by. Um, And uh, he's uh, been sort of bringing together what I really like about him is sort of integrating the worlds of of environment, uh, environmental justice, economic justice, job creation and opportunity, a whole bunch of great issues that really aren't talked about together often enough. So uh, Lauren, you talked with them this week. What was that conversation about? That was a lot of what we talked about. Van is is well known for several years ago now, back in 2008, 2009, talking about sort of the need for a third wave of environmentalism where social equity is really explicitly included in the conversation about deploying renewable energy and scaling up the green job market. So here's what he had to say about where we actually are in the third wave of environmentalism. Look, I think it's on the bubble. Right now, you'd have to be very concerned. We have a solar boom, but you know one could ask a boom for whom. You don't really have, 
you know, massive uptake yet in um, communities of color and not that much interest on the part of these solar companies uh, to go into communities of color, at least not aggressively yet. And a big part of that just has to do with the fact that the credit scores, scores you have to have to finance solar right now are just too damn high. You, know, you have to scale 700 and above often to finance solar on, on, on a house. You know, the smart thing to do would be to, to look past those individual credit scores and ask things that might be more relevant, like, um, you know, mortgage payments, energy bill payments, you know, not just somebody's overall credit score, and you'd open up a lot more opportunity. Also, you know, the, the community of color and the solar industry should go to the federal government and try to get uh, the U.S. Treasury to uh, create some products to help solve these problems. But you'd have to really want uh, to involve everybody, and right now it's just a lot easier just to cherry-pick wealthy folks' uh, rooftops for your solar panels. And um, luckily, on you know, the White House, uh, under you know, with some prodding from us at Green for All, wound up uh, putting forward a very good uh, uh, set of federal policies that begins to turn the tide on that. Bernie Sanders, by the way, has a bill uh, in Congress to try to accelerate the deployment of solar in poor communities. So, you know, there's, there's stuff happening, but we, we got a long way to go. And what about sort of the green job side of the equation? What are your thoughts on how we're seeing the employment market evolve for things like wind and solar? Well, you know, there's only 80,000 coal miners in America now. Um, there's more than 100,000 people working in the wind industry, more than 100,000 people working in solar. So there's already more. Uh, we already have more job creation, more jobs and faster job creation in clean energy than we have in, in dirty energy right now. Uh, and that's what the federal government having been missing in action for the past five or six years. And then sort of on the forward-looking side of the equation, you have the tech companies that are starting to get more involved with sustainability initiatives like uh, cleaner transportation and urban farming and some of these things. So thoughts on how you manage this convergence that we know is coming between the tech sector and sort of sustainability solutions and, and how you make sure that people don't get lost in the, the jobs that will be created there. Well, it's almost certain that um, they, they will get lost right now. Um, the environmental solution sector is disproportionately white and the tech sector is disproportionately white. So if you put them together, you'll probably have even more concentration of, of racial exclusion. That's just the reality of where we are. Um, and I don't know how to fix it. Uh, you know, we keep, we will uh, continue to uh, push where we can. Uh, I mean, we have, yes, we code as, a, as one solution on the employment side, and we're building that out aggressively to connect Oakland to Silicon Valley. Um, and, you know, we've been pushing the solar companies to do more and got the White House engaged. So we'll, we'll keep building tools and using tools and trying to apply pressure, but it would be it would be good for this next generation of techies and greens to be at least as inclusive as, as uh, their parents and grandparents were. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite remarkable to see all these young techies and environs with pictures of Dr. King and Gandhi and Mandela in their offices and no other people of color or poor people in sight. <laughs> So one of the other key things that Van highlighted was just sort of this overarching issue with the really overly wonky way we tend to even talk about climate issues in the first place. 
Um, so he's going to talk a little bit in the next clip about why maybe that isn't super effective for bringing new groups into the climate conversation. Beyond that, I was also really curious to get his thoughts on the rise of resilience as a sustainability buzzword, where city planners and outside groups are really trying to do more to consciously bring social issues into the conversation. Uh, Here's what he had to say about all of that, and I don't think it's what you would expect. Really smart climate policy can deliver more work, more wealth, and better health to more people than dumb climate policy has. But unfortunately, too many climate hawks spend all their time talking about, you know, greenhouse gases in parts per million and forget to talk about people and forget to talk about jobs and forget to talk about entrepreneurship and forget to talk about contracts (laughs) and forget to talk about apprenticeships and all those things that ordinary people really desperately need and can only get through smarter climate policy. But if we don't connect those dots, um, it doesn't work. And we keep banging the same bell about species extension and bad weather events and uh, don't understand why different people don't show up. Well, shit. I mean, <laughs> uh, you got you got to blow a different whistle. you got to ring a different bell if you want different folks to, to answer. Mm-hmm. Well, to that end, one of the things I was curious if you're tracking is sort of this increasing talk about resilience as sort of a sustainability buzzword. You've got big cities like L.A. and New York putting affordable housing alongside their sea level change preparations, saying like you've got to address both the underlying stressors with the potential for some of these acute climate impacts. Well, it's fine. It's, it's, it's okay. But, and, and, I'm, and I'm for it. I support it. But, um, you know, it's the kind of thing that sounds like people who went to college talk about. Um, you know, there's just some words like sustainability and resilience and, you know, all these words, they just sound like, you know, college people uh, writing papers. Um, I don't know how many people who live in a poor community, um, if a big flood came, want to have the ability to bounce right back to being poor. See, the problem with resilience thinking is that often it's about wherever you are, if something bad happens, we want you to be able to, to get back to where you were. But what if, we, what if where you were sucked? Um, see, I'm a lot more interested in leapfrog economics rather than resilience economics. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to use this stuff to get people to get people's cost of living down and their chances of living up. And uh, so people can actually have better lives. See, I think the problems of the green economy isn't just that, hey, if a storm comes, you won't drown. I mean, I think the problems of the green economy is that you know, you're, you're going to be, you know, you're going to have a, a a boat that can rise as high as anybody else's. And so, look, I'm for it. I mean, it's probably the smartest way to try to get some dollars moved around. But I don't know if it's going to inspire the kind of of uh, commitment that's required to get all the way across the finish line with it. I don't know. Look, man, if you could. If you could have locally based poison free food um, and distributed energy so that you know, you're powering your buildings and your machines with clean energy locally produced and you're powering your bodies with local green agriculture poison free, you, know, you you've, you've completely changed people's lives. Um, I mean, most of our lives are trying to figure out how we're going <laughs> to uh, pay for. You know, poison-drenched food 
um, and 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 uh, pollution uh, powered energy in our cars and in our buildings and and all that type of stuff. I'm, I'm really really passionate about getting solutions in the hands of people who really need them. I mean, it's, it's you got some people. It's just a lifestyle thing. It's just like the, the way to be cool. You know, I'm I'm trying. I'm I'm less interested in the green lifestyle. I'm more interested in the in the the people who are who are trying to live and need green solutions to live. Well, Van is nothing if not provocative, and one of the many things I, I, I've admired about him. Uh, in fact, he is going to be the recipient uh, this weekend of the first ever Environmental Media Association Green Biz Global Innovation Award that's, that I'm going to be giving to him down in L.A. at the 25th Annual Environmental Media Awards uh, dinner and gala. So I'm very excited uh, to be able to do that. And uh, as I said, he's been someone I've admired a long time. We'll be hearing a lot more from Van Jones, including next week at Verge. in the podcast each week where we talk about what's going on at GreenBiz and of course what's going on next week is Verge, our annual conference. It's about the convergence of technologies and how technologies uh, come together to accelerate sustainability solutions in a climate-constrained world. And one part of the Verge conference, which is down in San Jose on Monday through Thursday, is called City Summit, uh, where we talk with cities and technology companies but here to talk about that is Verge's Director of Engagement, Shauna Rappaport. Hi, Shauna. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so what is City Summit? Well, it, you know, as you mentioned, Verge at its core is really about technology integration and how technology is really accelerating and enabling sustainability solutions. And one of the most exciting places in terms of scale, scope, and leadership that, that that's happening is, is at the city scale. Um, and so, you know, when it comes, though, to how cities and companies are working together, public-private partnerships in, in, in technology procurement, you know, there's a lot of challenges that cities are facing and companies for that matter, too, whether it's cultural differences, procurement timelines, innovation. And so, so City Summit, the genesis of this this invitation-only full-day working session was really to bring together a targeted group of, of leaders from the public and private sectors with a number of NGOs as well to really understand how can the public and private sectors work together more effectively in order to really accelerate these goals. And that makes sense because cities uh, these days are we're looking at green cities, smart cities, sustainable cities, resilient cities, and first of all, we don't always know what that means and certainly don't really know how to get there. So What's going to happen during City Summit? Yeah, so it's a it's a unique event in that it you know it's a working session. So there will be very few formal plenaries or experts at the front of the room. Everyone in the room is an expert for that matter, and bringing a, a really rich uh, domain of expertise and, and and experience. You know, this year's focus is on uh, partnerships and financing for resilient infrastructure. Uh, so we're going to be really digging deeper into specifically energy, water, and transportation infrastructure, and have a really interesting mix of 
folks from cities across North America who are working and uh, working in those, uh, advancing those aspects of, of, of cities and, and also folks from the private sector as well. And so what do you hope is going to happen? What happens if this is a success? Well, it's certainly, we've certainly set out to, to uh, make progress on a very ambitious agenda. You know, resilient infrastructure, it's a big topic and there's a lot of good work to be done. So we won't sol- solve it all on Monday. Um, but, you know, if we, can, if we can advance the conversation and certainly bring folks together to forge meaningful connections that frankly help them go do their jobs better on Monday, but also understand kind of from a, from a bigger picture, how the work that they're doing in their cities and their companies is really part of the, the broader movement towards these smarter, sustainable, resilient cities. I think it will have been a success. Well, I'm really looking forward to City Summit and we'll check back in a few weeks and see what happened. Um, and if you uh, can't uh, be in San Jose next week, uh, City Summit will not be live streamed, but on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday uh, mornings, uh, the main stage plenary sessions will be live streamed for free. So uh, go to greenbiz.com and you can find the link and how to register for that. Uh, thanks so much, Shauna Rappaport. Thanks, Joel. Let's talk climate action, specifically dozens of companies that this week stepped up to join a White House pledge to cut carbon emissions in a big way. I'm here with senior writer Barbara Grady. Hi there, Barbara. Hey, Lauren. How are you? Good, good. So Barbara's been tracking climate commitments in the run-up to the Paris talks that will be coming up in December, where, by the way, Green Biz will be broadcasting live. Um, But Barbara, tell us a little bit about what happened this week. Yeah, so on Monday, 68 companies from all sorts of industries pledged to the White House that they would cut emissions, reduce waste, and do other significant things in the sustainability realm, and that they back negotiation of a strong climate deal in Paris later this fall. So the big deal was that it was many companies, 81 in total, 68 just this Monday, and joining 13 that made the same commitment in the summer, and the fact that they're from very disparate industries. Yeah, so specifically, let's let's drop some names. What companies are we talking about? Yeah, so in the summer, it started with like Google, Apple, Goldman Sachs, General Motors, Alcoa, a steel company, you know, and then just now, this week, we had Intel, Facebook, Hershey, the utility PG&E, American Express. So practically every industry you can think of. Yeah, that's interesting. And did the types of pledges these companies would make, did they vary by by company? Yes, the pledges varied a lot. Some companies like Mars have been very proactive in sustainability and they pledged to completely eliminate greenhouse gas emissions from their operations worldwide. And then there are companies that are kind of a little bit newcomers to this, like AT&T pledged to reduce their emissions 20%. Very interesting. And obviously this also isn't happening in a vacuum. I know you personally, Barbara, were at Climate Week in New York pretty recently. Um, so this is all happening in the run-up to Paris, and we're seeing sort of these disparate commitments coming out of different companies and NGO groups. How do you see these threads all starting to fit together? One way that it's fitting together is it seems the companies are saying, this is about economics, it's not about politics. By having 81 companies from 
very different industries step forward and say they want to do things to reduce emissions, et cetera, and they want to back a White House negotiation. They're saying, like, this is important. This is affecting our bottom line. We're going to do something. So it seemed to me to kind of take it out of politics in a way. I understand you also talked to a couple of companies about how they're thinking about all this. Is that right? Yes, I, I did. I had a chance, for instance, to talk to Diane Holdor from Kellogg Company about what all this collaboration and business stepping forward means. And this is what she had to say. It's remarkable to me the intersection and energy that's being created by having business so fully at the table with the public sector and multilaterals. Mm -hmm. And it's only, I think, through the intersection of our work Mm -hmm. that we can really accomplish the very ambitious effort it will take to close the two-degree gap and achieve the Sustainable Development Goal targets. Collaboration. Definitely hearing a lot about that these days. Did Diane talk uh, in particular about what she was doing during Climate Week? Yes, she told me about the meetings she had. First she was in Washington and then up in New York and met with a lot of interesting people. So we had a great meeting at the White House on Tuesday when we were talking about the commitment around climate smart agriculture and the contribution that that can make to low carbon technology solutions and how that has a big role to play in closing the gap because business of course is recognized as having a role to play through Paris and how we achieve a better than two degree world. And then on Saturday another event was the UN private sector forum and that was just the intersection. So was there? So um, the speakers included Dr. Angela Merkel, um, Mark Zuckerberg was there, Secret- Secretary General Ban Ki-moon opened it up, and it was very compelling because it was really speaking to the importance of private-public partnership mm-hmm. and the role of non-state players in business and contributing to everything it is that we want to accomplish, mm-hmm. both for climate as well as for the sustainable development goals. And you can't achieve the sustainable development goals without achieving successful climate outcomes. They really go hand in hand. And it was just very, very exciting. All right, so we've got these ambitious climate commitments, but how do we know companies are actually going to hit them? What sort of strategies do they employ to make these things a reality? That's a good question, Lauren. So when I was at Climate Week, I also got a chance to talk with Len Sawyers, who is Procter & Gamble's Vice President of Global Sustainability. And he talked about what Procter & Gamble will specifically do. For us, historically, we reduced greenhouse gas emissions through conservation and eco-efficiency. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to be sufficient going forward. You know, all the low-hanging fruits have been, been, been picked. We now need to switch from fossil fuels to renewable energy. So that's what's causing us now to commit to the RE100. We've already had that long-term vision of 100% renewable energy. We set that in 2010. So it's always been a path we've been taking the company down. But this allows us to formalize it with a a reputable group like RE100, but also it sets us up for collaborations into the future with kind of like-minded companies. Um, Because as I mentioned, we can't do it by ourselves. The idea of collaboration with other companies has been around for a while in trade associations, you know, because, you know, like-minded companies come together in their trade associations to advance causes. You're probably familiar with the Consumer Goods Forum and the work that we're doing to stop deforestation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all individual 
that companies had set goals on deforestation, prevent, de preventing deforestation, um, but we all set slightly different goals. So we were all able to come together as CGF, get consistency around those goals, you know, by putting out sourcing guidelines that we all agreed to. And then with your, by driving that consistency within the supply chain, I think it's, it's much easier to achieve the results we want than have individual companies doing separate things. So that was all about deforestation. But Procter & Gamble's making a really big move into renewable energy. So I asked Len Sawyers, how are you going to do that? We needed to build a utility scale facility. Wow. Mm -hmm. And we had we did not have the expertise for something like that. Okay, so that's where then it requires you to reach out to those with that expertise and come in and help you. So if I think of this new biomass facility that we're building in Albany, Georgia to take waste wood and burn it for uh, steam. It's going to supply 100% of our electricity for our plant down there. And it's in partnership with Constellation Energy in the state of Georgia, and then it's going to supply energy to the surrounding community. That one project gives us 7% renewable energy. So it's really kind of a big deal for us. Fascinating stuff. Thanks, Barbara. Um, I, I also think it's just important to sort of look at the bigger picture here. Um, obviously, we've been talking to death about COP21, and again, stay tuned for more about that. You can go to greenbiz.com, click on the COP21 tab at the top of the page for the latest on what's going on with the Paris climate talks. But we also saw just this week a big political upset in Canada, where you have the Liberal Party taking power after a conservative administration has backed a big expansion of the fossil fuel industry. So we've got lots of interesting things to watch here in the, the global picture. And I just want to thank you, Barbara, for taking the time. Oh, it's been great, Lauren. Thank you. For the full list of companies who jumped on board with the White House initiative this week, that would be Barbara's story. Check out greenbiz.com slash 350, and that's where you can also find all of the stories and organizations that we've mentioned on the podcast. Let's switch gears now to upcoming events. Aside from Verge, which you guys have all been hearing about coming up next week in San Jose, we've got a couple of free webcasts on the horizon. On November 3rd, we'll be looking at green infrastructure in the triple bottom line. That's looking at new technologies for sustainable city design. Uh, and then November 10th, getting back into climate action and beyond COP21, why tackling climate change is good for business. You can find out more about all of our events by going to greenbiz.com and clicking on the events tab at the top of the page. Now we're here with managing editor Elsa Wenzel. Hey, Elsa, how's it going? Hi, good. How about you? Good, good. Thanks so much for joining us. Elsa is here to help give us a look at the week ahead for greenbiz.com. Well, our readers love stories about employee engagement, but do CSR programs actually pay off? Our talent show columnist Ellen Weinreb says yes in a story for Monday that looks at the ROI of CSR and specifically in HR. She cites a recent report called Project ROI that was sponsored by Verizon and Campbell Soup. 
The report translates sustainability efforts into dollar signs. So IBM, for example, cites a 300% ROI. That's a $600 million return for just $200 million spent on its corporate service core. That's a program where employees help a company in a developing region. But Ellen Weinreb points out that sustainability has to be core to your business model, strategy, and culture, and not just a PR checklist. And she includes some tips. Also, GreenBiz Associate Editor Lauren here will look at what's driving the rise of connected supply chains. Hint, it's all about smartphones, data analytics, and the Internet of Things. Um, This piece will be a follow-up to her recent story, Nine Supply Chain Tech Companies You Should Know. So look that one up. It's really good. Um, As far as other stories next week, it's all about Verge. We'll be covering Verge all week from San Jose. We'll have deep dives on... Topics like smarter cities, buildings, transportation and supply chains, as well as microgrids, sustainable water systems, and more. Um, So watch out. Well, thanks, Elsa. And thank you, Lauren, as always, for being my co-host. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can find links to organizations, stories, and events that we've mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to Soraya Melkonian for providing our technical direction. And we'd love to hear your comments. Send us your feedback and any compliments. We'd love to hear those too to 350 at greenbiz.com. And as always, for the latest news, insight, and resources on sustainable business and clean technology, visit greenbiz.com. Subscribe to our daily newsletter, Green Buzz. For all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day.